0: Today's scripture comes from Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we just declare that you are a good God. Um, Father, we would just want to breathe deep today and just soak you in. Um, father, I ask that these words would just resonate with us and may they just reveal something new to us today about, um, just your character and who you are. Father, I just ask that, um, burdens of this week or worries of what has gone on in our life. father, may those just disappear this morning as we just sit, um, and soak up the words that you have for Kevin to bring to us today. Father, we love you and we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Well, good morning. It's good to see a lot of you guys back. Uh, If this is your first time at Aletheia, thank you so much for uh, visiting us this morning. Um, We're really glad to have you here. Um, If you weren't here earlier when um, I was forgetting that I hadn't introduced myself before we did the children's dedication, uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, uh, Aletheia is about five and a half years old as a church, so we're still relatively young here in Gainesville. Um, in kid years, we're a kindergartner, so we still have a long way to, to go to maturity. Uh, but we appreciate you being here and worshiping uh, with us this morning. Um, if I could give you just a, a brief pitch about who we are, I could sum it up in one word. Jesus. Jesus. Right, we believe that we, as a church, are here to make much of Jesus, and to lead each and every person that the Lord might bring uh, into community with us into a growing relationship with Him. And I, I, I would contend personally, and again, this is my opinion, and I'm only 32, so you so just take it for what you will. But I would contend that of all the major world religions, across all major philosophies that have been written down over the last couple millennia, that, that in all of the epic stories of human history that we have recorded, that we turn into movies or TV series or whatever else it may be, there is no one that compares to Jesus of Nazareth. You won't, you won't find one. There, there is no one that can measure up to the magnitude of what Jesus Christ has done. There is no one that you will find in, in, in the annals of history that made the claims that Jesus did. You, you will not find it. And, and take my word for it. When I was in college, I tried. I tried to find something that could even remotely compare to the things that Jesus claimed to be, and that would measure up to the things that he did, and I couldn't find it. I could not find it, and so it is my life's passion to make much of him. And for as long as you would worship with us and be a part of this community, our desire and our goal would be to lead you so that your life could do one thing, and that's make much of him. And that's a life well lived. Whether you're in the the marketplace, whether you're a a college student, whether you're a professor, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whatever it may be, we want to lead you and help you and come alongside you to make much of him. That's it. I, I, I don't care if the name of Aletheia Church is not on everyone's tongue in this city. I don't care if you can't remember my name. If you, yeah, my pastor, he's 5'6". He's short and he's white. That's it. That's, if, that's, if that's the description of me, go for it. But I want to see us make much of Jesus. And so we have a number of ways here to, to help encourage you to grow as a follower of Christ. One of, those, one of those ways is right here on Sunday morning where we gather together to worship. Uh, another way is community groups that meet throughout the week so we might encourage one another in prayer and in study of the word, and enjoy a meal together. And, and then we have opportunities on every Monday night where we come together as a church and we pray for things together. We pray for one another. We pray for a church, for, for our church, but for the church at large here in Gainesville as well. And so if you are new to Gainesville, please, this is, my, this is my charge to you, please do not waste this season of your life. You, you, you get a brief period of time where God might call you to be a student or be a part of the greater Gainesville community, God can do amazing things in that short amount of time. And it is our desire to see you grow as a follower of him in that season. So... That's my pitch to you guys this morning. If, if you didn't see, we have connect cards on the table right when you come in and over here on the welcome desk. I would encourage you if you're new here to fill one of these out, and we will do our best to serve you and find a way to get you connected into community here. Sound good? I'm getting a couple nods and then a bunch of blank stares. Wake up. Let's go. I haven't preached for six weeks. We're going to be here for at least three hours. Let's be ready. All right. Wake up. Alright, so here we go. Now, as you may have surmised this morning, we are starting a new sermon series this morning uh, out of the the book of Ephesians. And, And just as a disclaimer, this is one of my favorite books of the entire Bible because it is theologically rich, it is incredibly practical, and it is super encouraging. You'll you'll notice those themes over and over and over again as we work through the scriptures. And as we enter into this uh, time where we're going to open God's word and study, and we're going to be doing it over the course of the next 10 to 11 weeks, I want you to be thinking in the back of your mind constantly as we're processing through this book, this one simple question, who am I? Pretty simple, three words, who am I? Because your answer to that question will say a lot about who you are as a person and what you believe about the world around you. See, everyone, every one of you is going to have an answer to that question. And, and, and bear with me if you're a little confused. But everyone's going to have an answer to that question, and it goes beyond just your name. Like if I ask my kid, who are you, he's just going to give me his name. Because he's, he he's not old enough, he hasn't experienced a lo- enough life yet to really kind of have this identity formed in his heart at who he is. But if I dug at him a little bit, he would say, well, I'm Gideon, and I belong to the Anderson family. That's, that's who I am. And, 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 and I go to school, I'm a, I'm a student, right? And, and so his, his identity starts to form if we start processing through it with him. And, and maybe your identity is wrapped up in something else. Maybe your, your identity is wrapped up in being popular and liked. Maybe your identity is is wrapped up in being really smart and educated. Most of you students, you you have GPAs that didn't even exist when I was in school. There there was such a thing as not being able to be above the number four at one point in time, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was in school. Some of you guys, maybe your identity is wrapped up in being compassionate. Maybe maybe you're you're the athletic person, and you you find your identity and... Your, your physique and your, and your body and, and, and being able to conquer in the athletic department. Maybe, maybe your identity is, is, I just want to be a great dad or mom, right? And none of these things at face value are bad things. And maybe even as I list some of these things out, you're sitting there and you're saying, well, I actually have no idea who I am and I'm trying to figure that out. But here's the reality. All of us and it is my belief that God has hardwired us for this. All of us are constantly asking and seeking the answer to, to this question of, of who am I? And as we're answering that question, we seek to project that to the world around us. Like, like one of the things I like, frequently try to remind my wife, especially when we were in the early days of being a parent, you know, like, everyone's Instagram is their best life now, and I don't mean Joel Osteen's book. Like, It's like, oh, you know, like, I took my kid today, and we went to the zoo, and it was amazing, and like, look how great of a parent I am. No one's posting the picture of your kid puking on you at 3 in the morning. We're all projecting this image that we want others to receive about who we are, so they might think that that's who they are. They're They're the popular person. They're the educated person. They're the compassionate person. They're the good friend. You know, my story was when I got to college... It was fairly popular in high school and outgoing. And so I sought my identity in popularity and partying and meeting people. That was it. That was going to be my ticket to to finding kind of my my niche in life and who I was going to be. And by the end of my first semester at college, away from my parents, away from much of my support base, I was empty. Because the reality was, as much as I tried to project this image and believe these things about myself, they brought no lasting satisfaction and joy to my life. And in between my sophomore and junior year, I had been wrestling kind of with these major questions of like, why in the world am I even on this, this rock that goes around our sun every 365 days, and what am I supposed to be doing on it? What, what is the purpose of my life, and why, why, why do I wake up in the morning? Why do I go to school? Why do I do these things? And then in between my sophomore and junior years, I encountered Jesus, and my world changed forever. Sometimes not even to my liking or to what I wanted, but my world changed forever. And so what we're going to see over the course of our study in Ephesians is, I believe, a timely message for each and every one of us here this morning. Right, like, it, it, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, which sits you know, kind of like in modern-day Turkey, right on the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And so it... It was a major seaport and a very, very large city for this period in time where Paul's writing this letter. And some things to know about Ephesus is that it was multicultural, it was highly educated, and that pluralism dominated the society. And What I mean by pluralism is that there were multiple religious beliefs. Some historians estimate that there were as many as 30 different temples to different gods throughout the city of Ephesus, with which the largest one belonged to uh, an Olympian god named uh, Artemis. And if you don't know who Artemis was, Artemis was the god of, of chastity, which is actually ironic because sex was actually an industry in the city of uh, Ephesus where you would go to a temple and prostitution occurred there as an act of worship. And so here's a, just a, a little snapshot of what the the church was living in, in the city of Ephesus. Highly, highly educated, uh, pluralistic, many different thoughts and worldviews and backgrounds going on, and Paul is writing this letter to the church to encourage them in the first three chapters, hey, this is who your God is and who you are in him, don't lose sight of that. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he's going to say, okay, now that I've reminded you with your identity being rooted in the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the everlasting one, in knowing him, here is how the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done shapes your life. He's writing to a group of people surrounded by all sorts of different worldviews and things being thrown at them, and he's saying, "Look, here, here's who you are, here's who we are, here's how we should live." Guys, the similarities between the culture of Ephesus and our culture in Gainesville are staggering. Gainesville is highly educated. Because of the university, we have people from all over the world that live in our city. We have people that come from every different walk of life and religious background in our city. And the issues with sex trafficking, among other things in our city, are staggering as well. We're not that different. And so I would, I would submit this to you. That as we work through this letter together, this letter could be written to our city. And there's much for us to glean from it. So if you just bow your head, I'm going to pray, right, because my intro is done now. I'm going to pray that God might meet us as we continue to kind of look through his word and study it this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. As we study it more closely this morning, might you meet us so that our minds might be renewed, our hearts might be convicted of sin, and that we might repent and turn to you and trust in you. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so go ahead and open up your Bible if you haven't already. So after Paul starts this letter like he he does most of his letter, right? He starts with this initial greeting, right? He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he just gives this, this basic greeting that he tends to do at the, the beginning of most of his letters. And then this is what he says when we get starting in verse three, right? We see just this beautiful, almost like this poetic uh, uh declaration of who God is and what he has done, right? Let me read it again for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory now 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 look at look at what he does right he says he basically says hey what up Ephesus and then he starts in right away and, and if we were you know in the 21st century, if he was writing this letter, right, we might expect someone who's writing a letter to us to start with us. But who does he start with? You can answer. God, oh, I heard one person whisper in like the smallest of tones, right? So I'm going to give you guys the same spiel Daniel gave last week. Sometimes I'm going to ask questions. It's going to be your job to decipher whether I actually want an answer, but just yell it out. Worst thing that can happen is you're wrong, and I'll just poke fun of you for a minute, and then we'll move on, right? But God, right? Paul starts with God. He says, look, here, here's the deal, right? right? Here you are in this major port city with so much going on, but remember, this is who your God is, right? And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Basically, saying what Paul's saying there in verse three, he's like, look, just we need to give all the glory to God. We need to praise him because he has given us every spiritual blessing right to translate this he says look god has hooked us up let's give him some attention for a moment let's just think about it and then guess what he does he doesn't just say you know like when, when i was a kid growing up right whenever my dad would like declare something or say something to do right so paul's declaring to us let's let's praise and bless god right if my dad gave me an instruction i'd be like dad why he would say because what i said so right some of you had parents that did the same thing my dad did right Well, Paul doesn't just say because I said so. Then he moves into the why. He moves into the why we should be giving God this attention, right? So here we go. Right? He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So he says, hey, look. Praise God. Give him glory. Give him the attention and the honor and the worship that he deserves. Why? Because he chose us. When? When did he choose us? Because he chose us before the foundation of the world. right? And he's going to repeat those same themes in verse 5 and verse 11. right? Look at verse 5. He says, He predestined us for adoptions as sons of. Through Jesus Christ. Then go down to verse 11 with me. In him we have obtained an inheritance having what? Been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Alright, so here's, you know, here's one of those funny things that God does. Right? I haven't preached in six weeks. And the first thing that God gives me the privilege and the opportunity to do when I get back up here in front of you guys is to talk about predestination. For those of you guys that didn't grow up in the church and, and haven't walked with the Lord for a season, you're like, what the heck is this guy talking about? Don't worry, I'm going to explain it to you. For those of you guys that did grow up in their church, you're like, just say a prayer for me real quick, okay? So, so here's the deal, right? The Bible talks about things sometimes that we may or may not want to deal with. It just does. That's one of the beauties of it. But I need to set something straight before we even start breaking some of this down and working through it. I need to set something straight. If you and I have a belief about something, and then we read God's word, and it says something contrary to what we believe, guess who's wrong? You. You want to know how I know? This thing's been around a couple thousand years, and you've been around about 20 This has stood the test of time time and time again. It stood with the rise and falls of major world superpowers. It stood the rise and fall of uh, churches uh, literally falling apart and falling into disarray and sin. The Word of God has even withstood the likes of Richard Dawkins. right? Because the reality is is, it doesn't change in its truth. The the reality is is, is when we get to topics like predestination in Scripture, we need to get to peel back the layers, one of our preconceived notions of what we're walking into that, that space with. We need to peel back those layers, but then we also need to get to where we see the full weight of what God is trying to say to us. Because God doesn't share anything with us that he doesn't want us to know about him. And look, this is not to say that, that the, the doctrine of, of predestination and, and, and Paul talking about this and sharing it with us in the book of Ephesians isn't going to raise some tough questions like, well, what about free will, right? Or, or what about some being chosen and others not? But before we address those questions, it is important that I share something with you, and I want you to repeat after me, okay? All right? So seriously, I do not know everything about god go ahead i do not know everything about god okay now i know that i made you repeat that and it sounded kind of like monotone or whatever else but think think about that for a second it's true you do not know everything about god and here's the other thing i would submit to you you can't know everything about god and here's why that's good news because if you can know everything about him that would make you God, and I hate to break it to you, you're not a very, you are not a very good God. You want to know how I know that? For about 21 years, I operated as my own God, and I couldn't even do it for myself. Much less for anyone else around me. So... It's actually in God's design that we don't know everything there is to know about him or the universe around us. And I know that hurts some of you guys. Some of you guys, you know, you're going to be, you know, the, the world's most renowned doctor or physicist or, you know, the best public relations person that the world has ever seen, right? You know, every student I, I, come, I come in contact with, especially you freshmen, I love you guys. You come in, I'm like... So what's your major? And you say your major. and I'm like, what do you want to do? Change the world. I'm like, let's do it. When I got to college, I'm like, I want WVU to win the national championship. It had nothing to do with me. I picked my college experience based on my favorite sports team. Don't do that, by the way. If you are at UF solely because of the Gators, they will sorely disappoint you. The reality is, is that no matter how much you know and how, how intelligent you are and how, how you're working out these things and searching this identity deep inside you of who you are, God has designed it so you don't know anything, everything. Now, if you don't believe me, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 29. I'm going to read one verse for you, and hopefully that will be enough to put this, this notion to bed that you know everything. But look at chapter uh, 29 in Deuteronomy, verse 29. This is, this is Moses talking to the people of Israel, and here Moses was like God's special spokesperson. If anyone knew everything, it was him, and look at what he says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So here Moses says, God has things he does not reveal, and what he has revealed, it is our responsibility to respond to those things and trust him. In the words of Aaron Rodgers, R-E-L-A-X, relax. It's okay that you don't know everything. And for some of you guys, you have no idea who I'm talking about. A quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. They lost like three games, and that's what he, that was his press conference, and he walked out of the room. And then they won like five straight games. Here's my word to you this morning. Relax. God's bigger than you are. And it's okay. Like that, that's a good thing. I I don't know about you guys, but if I'm gonna if I'm gonna serve God and know him and follow after him, I want him to be bigger and better than I am. I, I want a God that's unknowable. I want a God whose ways are not my ways. So here is what we see. Before the world was made, Paul is saying, God chose before the foundations of the world for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and King and have submitted to him as our God and our reigning King in heaven, Before you ever made that decision or prayed a prayer or came down front or burned your CDs at camp, if you had CDs at that time, or threw your iPod in or whatever it is, before all of that ever happened, before the universe was set into motion, God chose to love you. Think about that for a second. Long before your parents walked this earth, long before your grandparents or your great-grandparents, Long before any of that ever occurred, God said, I choose you. And we're not talking Pokemon here because I know that that's what that sounds like immediately. So God says, I choose to love you. Now, the, now the question we start asking then is that if before the foundations of the world, Paul is communicating to them, your identity is in him because he chose to love you. Why is God revealing this to us? Why is Paul taking all of the ownership for our salvation and our knowing God as, as king and savior? Why is Paul taking all the responsibility off of our shoulders and placing them squarely on God's? Is it because Kevin is inherently worthy? Was God like, Yo, you know what? Like, I'm going to create this guy in 1985, and he is going to be awesome. Mario is laughing so hard right now because he knows me just about better than anyone in this room. Other than my wife who's crying. <laughs> now that, that Kevin is so much better that I'm going to choose him. I'm going to choose to love him. Or is it because God looked into the future? He had like a crystal ball and he's like, well, I know that Kevin is going to make a decision for me one day. So I'm going to choose him. Is, is, that, is that why Paul is revealing all this to this? And that is not what Paul is saying in his language here in Ephesians. Right? What, people ask me something, Kevin, why do you believe in predestination? Well, number one, the Bible says it. Let's start there. But then I've done enough research on my own to know that when, when the Bible says words like chosen and predestination, that's what those words mean. You know, when, when verse 4 says that he chose us before the foundation of the word, that's the Greek word eklegeomai. And it means to, to draw out or to pick out. Meaning that, that God picked out those he chose to love. Then when he says in verse 4 that we were predestined, it's the, the word proorizo, right? And it, it means to decide or determine before something happens. Sounds like predestination. To, to pick something out sounds an awful lot like chosen. And so what God is communicating to us is that he first chose to love us and that we love him because he chose to love us. Don't believe me? Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Throw that, throw that up there for me. Right here. John is talking to the church and talking about our response to God and how we love one another and he says All right what we love why because he first loved us that we love God because he first loved us so so why is this revealed look at look at the pattern starting in in verse 3 all the way through verse 14, right? In verse three, he says, right, in the beginning, praise God. Why? Because he chose us. Then we get all the way down to verse 14. We get to the end of Paul's little mini sermon within his letter here. And he says, look at verse 14. Actually, I wanna start in verse 13, excuse me. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed him were what? We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Meaning, from beginning, God chooses, to the end, where he seals and guarantees our inheritance. God is in control. Paul is sharing that God chooses in salvation, and that that is actually good news. It is actually good news that God chose you instead of you choosing him because it means God is in the driver's seat of whether or not you're saved. And if you don't believe me, let me just give you one more brief look. In verses 3 through 14, there are 24 verbs. Does everybody in here know what a verb is? Because I didn't. Right? A verb is an action, okay? Some of you guys won't admit it, but you had no idea what I was talking about when I said that right there. I don't know how you got through the SAT. A verb is an action. Okay, of those 24 action words in in these verses, 20 of them are attributed to God. Let me read some of them for you. In verse 3, God blesses us. In verse 4, God chooses us. In verse 5, God predestines us. In verse 5, God adopts us. In verse 6, God gives grace to us. In verse 7, God forgives us through Christ. In verse 7, God redeems us. It means to purchase us out of slavery, right? We get to verse 8, and God lavishes grace upon us. We get to verse 9, and he makes known his will towards us, meaning he reveals all this to us. We get to verse 10, when God unites all things together. When we get to verse 11, God works for our good. When we get to verse 13, God is the one who seals us. Not one word in all of that work describes our work unto God, but describes God's work for us and unto us. And then when you look at the four verses that describe us, just so we get a picture of what God is saying, look at what he says. In verse 12, we hope in him. In verse 13, we hear and listen. In verse 13, we also believe. And I love this one, verse 11, is something we do and yet it's not something we do. Verse 11, we obtain or receive an inheritance. You don't do anything to receive an inheritance, it's given to you. Like Paul, But Paul throws the bone, oh well yeah, you get that. You go and take what's given to you. Right? That, that is the language of what we're talking here. And so God reveals this to us and this is why this is shared with us. And guys, this is so important. This is why doctrines like predestination are important. God is sharing them to us for a reason. Not just so that we can be theologically heady and have a bunch of head knowledge, but so that we would know this. God loves you far deeper if you are a follower of Jesus Christ than you could ever imagine. Far, far deeper than you could ever imagine. God says, you know how much I love you? I act and you get saved. I do the work, you get all the reward. You sin, I pay the penalty for it. God says, I love you so much that I act on your behalf so that you might know me. If you have ever been truly loved by somebody, think, think about this for a second. If you have ever been truly loved by somebody, where they choose to love you time and time again, you will understand this. Because like, the reality is, I'm going to try to do this without getting emotional. I don't get emotional very often, but when I talk about my wife, I do sometimes. I learned a couple of months ago that I, I'm a type eight, uh, was it number eight on the Enneagram? Those of you guys who have no idea what I do. You don't need to worry about this. I'm just rambling at this point, but basically we don't do emotions. It's just that's 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 my personality type. Guys, my wife chooses to love me daily. I have done some really really stupid and wicked things over the course of our marriage. Things I'm not even, and I'm pretty transparent, things I'm not even willing to share with you guys from up here. Things that I'm ashamed of to say that I love that woman, and yet I would, I would say those words. I mean, when, when when we were walking through a miscarriage, I processed through that puppy in about 48 hours, and I just moved on. And as my wife was dealing with the physical trauma and emotional trauma of losing a child, I abandoned her. And yet she chose to love and forgive me. Guys, that speaks to the heart. Right? Knowing that she chooses to love me despite my own unworthiness moves mountains how how could she choose to keep loving me when i made covenantal vows to her on our wedding day that i wouldn't do the very thing that i did and yet she does and so because of that my love for her continues to grow because i see her faithfulness And so you might be sitting there asking this question. You say, okay, Kevin, I hear you. All right, the, the Bible says that God chose me before the foundations of the world, blah, 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 blah. But, but why would God choose me? Well, it's not based upon your own ability or it's not because of something inherently good in you or because you're worthy of love or you're like my wife and you've displayed that love to him and over and over again. So he chose to do it, right? Two reasons. Number one is Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. We're gonna come back around to this in a few minutes, right? But it's for his glory, God chose to save you to make much of himself. And guess what? That's not narcissistic. Because we were designed to worship and know him. It's actually for our good that he gets the attention, not us. Number one, because you're not worthy of it. But number two, because he is. Now, not only does God save us to the praise of his glory, but look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8 with me really quick. You've got a Bible, you can just look at the the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 7, the heading above that, right? It says a chosen people. And you get down to verse 8, look what he says. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God saves us he chooses us because he loves us and not because we're all together lovely but because he makes us lovely love causes people to act in in ways that are irrational and don't seem to go <laughs> along the lines of conventional wisdom it fights against your instincts and oftentimes is going to seem stupid you know, for for me, right? Like, like love just causes you to do some strange things. Like, I was going to college. I was going to be an athletic trainer uh, and work as a higher up for an, for a sports team or for a university or for a program. Or I was going to work in parks and recreation, uh, helping change the the cities that I was in uh, to make them healthier. And then I met Jesus, and I ended up moving 800 miles away from my hometown, where I wanted to live and grow up and be around my family, to plant a church in a place I didn't know. And in case you're worried, about it and thought oh well Kevin came to Gainesville because he thought it was a cool place to live I didn't want to come here because Steve Spurrier ruined my favorite sports franchise so I had no outside inkling i like man I really love to live in Gainesville Florida it's hot here I've grown to love it wearing flip-flops on Christmas day is pretty cool in my opinion but there was nothing that drew me here other than the compulsion of my love for God and wanting others to see that same love that he has for me. When I told my parents, hey, we're moving to Florida away from all of our family and come to playing a church, they're like, what? Like, why? Jesus, he's worth it. I love him more than I love you. I love you, mom. I love him more. He loves me more than you love me. That love causes us to do things. And so you say, well, why why did God choose to love me? He just did. He just did. The same way Jackie chooses to love me because she just did. That doesn't make it any less beautiful. It actually makes it more beautiful. There's no transaction taking place. God just chose to love you because he wanted to. Do you get the beauty in that? So say, okay, okay, God chose me. I'm chosen. Well, what about my free will? Right? We still haven't gotten through that really, really difficult question. Am I just a robot? What, a, what about my free will? Well, I would start with this. I want, if, you, if you're one of those people and you're sitting here like, I hate Kevin talking about predestination. What about free will? What's going on? My mind is exploding right now. Let me start with this. Right? If we're gonna have this discussion, we need to first def- to define what free will is. The, most of us are Western in our thinking and so we're, we are under the impression of what the Stoics believed about free will, which meant that you were completely free to make any decision you ever wanted in any given situation, I reject that notion of free will. You want to know why? Because we all have desires, and whatever desire is strongest is what is going to override any decision-making process. Like, I know, let me give you an example, because I see some of you looking at me like, what is Kevin talking about? He's getting really philosophical here for a second. All right, I know that eating at Taco Bell is poor for my health. And that likely what is inside my burrito is not real meat. And so when I'm hungry, I'm like, you know what, I should really eat a salad. I'm 32, I don't have any metabolism left any longer. The only only way I'm going to eat and not immediately gain five pounds is to eat a salad. And I'm like, you know what, that beefy Frito burrito tastes really good. And so immediately, right, I have free will and I'm pitted. And guess what? Like I know what the right decision is. Guess, which, guess what's going to win in that moment though? Whichever desire is stronger. The desire to be healthy or the desire to taste what I think tastes good. And every one of us in every decision that we make are driven by these desires. And you're not free. Otherwise things like addiction wouldn't exist. If you were truly free, we as human beings would never become addicted to anything. But desires override even rational thinking at times. And so when, when I say free will, I'm talking about how you respond to your desires. And look at what Jesus has to say about free will and how we respond to him. In John chapter 6, verse 44, he says this. No one can come to me unless what? The Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now that word draw is the Greek word, helkuo. And here's what it means. It means to lead or to drag out somewhere. Meaning you are like physically accosted and moved in a direction. And it carries this idea that that a hungry person being drawn to food for sustenance... So, so at least in my understanding, here, here's how I, I think that, that, that Jesus is trying to explain this to us by the language there. That God designed you and I to hunger and long for him. And then when sin entered into the world, that longing was still there. But we started seeking other things to fill in that longing, that hunger, that desire. And we started running after other things to satisfy that hunger. And God, in his mercy, uses that hunger and that drive to instead, when he sends his son, draw us to Christ. To draw us to him where we realize and have it revealed before us that the only thing that can truly satisfy that hunger is Jesus. That you and I would never run after Jesus on our own, but God in his mercy and through the work of the Holy Spirit draws us onto him. If you don't believe me, Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this a little bit, and we'll look at it in a couple weeks, but Paul starts talking about how you and I were, if you're a follower of Christ, how you and I interacted with God before we became followers of him, and guess what kind of language he uses? Death. Now, Now, I don't know, you know, what particular background you guys come from but here's what i know dead things don't decide to do things they're dead dead things don't make decisions dead things don't choose to do things they're dead we aren't just people that do bad things sometimes we're dead people Unto God we are dead, and yet God in his mercy and Christ makes us alive again. That's why when Nicodemus goes to Jesus and says, What must I do to be born again? Guess what Jesus says? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Guess what Jesus says? You must be born again. And Nicodemus, you know, this highly intelligent Pharisee is like, What the heck is this guy talking about? Nicodemus was dead. He was dead unto God. And he searched everywhere to fill those passions and those hungers with things other than God. And he could not be satisfied until God drew him to Christ. God draws us out of death and into life through the power of the gospel. The good news of what Christ has done. So here's the deal, guys. I could could literally talk for hours about this, but I just want to point out two final things to you this morning, okay? Go back and look at verse 5 in Ephesians chapter 1 with me. It says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. you're not a Christian here this morning or you are a Christian but you haven't been in the church very long or whatever and you're like why are Christians so crazy we're crazy because we were orphans who didn't have a dad and all of a sudden got a dad and a family we were someone without any spiritual heritage any family and you know things and we didn't just get a dad we got a good dad a dad who was there and present and loved us because of sin We are all orphans, but because of Jesus' work on the cross, we are all sons. I have a few friends who have adopted children for for various reasons over the years. And the one thing that I see as a consistent theme between all those families is two things. Number one, the moment they get that child, they love that child fully. And and I mean, it is amazing to see. They didn't carry the child, they didn't give birth to the child, they didn't prepare through all the things that you go through in pregnancy to prepare for the child. They didn't do all that. And yet they love that child just like they love their own biological children. And number two, not a single one of them want to unadopt the kid. My, my friend, when, when he stood in front of the judge in Maryland to adopt their daughter, had to promise that they would do it until she became an adult. That he was making that commitment. I, I make this commitment to her. That I'm going to love her and parent her and shepherd her and be her dad until I die or she becomes an adult. That He made that commitment. And that's what God does, does to us and on an even grander scale. So if you're sitting here and you're, and you're saying, what, 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 okay, I get it. God God chose. He He predestined. He loved. Like, Why, why would God? God, do this. I told you we were gonna look at the second half of that verse earlier. Look at verse six and verse 12 and verse 14 with me. I'm just gonna read them in consecutive order. In verse six, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And you look down at verse 12. He says that we were who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of his glory and you get down to verse 14 who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to what the praise of his glory if you don't take anything else away other than knowing that god loves you take this away as well this can be one of the most important things you ever learn about god god is for God. He's for himself. He's for his glory. He's for his honor. He's, he's, he's for himself. Like some of us think, you know, because we're, we live in the West and we're in a highly individualistic culture that like Jesus saved you because he just loved you so much. And that, that is true. But he didn't primarily save you because you were totally worthy of being saved. You were totally worthy of having Jesus come live and die on the cross so, so that you might be adopted. There, it wasn't like God's was like, oh man, like, okay, let me let me weigh the cost here and you know, let me do some accounting. Okay, yeah, okay, I, I think I'll do that. It's worth it. No, what was at stake on the cross was not your eternity in heaven, but God's glory. Jesus hung on the cross to forgive you of your sins, but to bring glory to the Father. He even says that as he's heading there. Father, magnify me so I might magnify you. Right? His entire ministry is centered around making much of God the Father because God is for God. And some of you guys are like, because I know you're just like me, and you're sitting there right there, and you're like, my God is a narcissist. Like God is so selfish. God being for God is the best news I've ever come to embrace. Because here's the here's the reality: sin has corrupted me. It's distorted my thinking and my understanding of who I am and who God is. And so I I don't make good decisions. I don't think rationally. As a matter of fact, instead of letting God be God, I want to be God. And so I'm, I'm constantly at war internally. And the reality is, is that God is bigger than I am, meaning that when it comes to my life and my salvation, there is something bigger at stake than just whether I spend an eternity in hell with or not, and that's his glory. And because God is for God and he's after his own glory, guess what? Anything I do now, sinning, rebellion, whatever it may be, is not going to change his mind. Because God is after his glory and saving you is for his glory, he's going to save you whether you deserve it or not. And guess what? None of us do. Because God is after his own glory, and so we celebrate him because he's for himself. And that he saves us to bring all of us into his family to make much of him so we could praise his glorious name. And this should give us great hope. Right, if if God is for God and He saves us to the praise of His glory, then my performance doesn't matter. If I'm saved by by the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Christ, I'm saved and He keeps me because He chooses to for His own sake. Right, He says that in verse 12. He says, so that you who are the the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, were what? Sealed. That word seal, right, means to keep or to protect. How many of you guys like peanut butter? Like half the room. Okay. Derek with two hands because he loves it. Okay. Now, keep your hand up if you like peanut butter. How many of you guys who like, more hands went up, I love it. All right, how many of you guys that like peanut butter like a brand other than Jif? Some hands went down. For those of you that hands went down, you don't like peanut butter, you like garbage. (laughs) Okay, now here's the deal. Here's how a seal works. You can put your hands down now. Here's how a seal works, right? Jif peanut butter is the only good peanut butter. And Jif, right, the company wants you to know what their peanut butter is. So guess what they do? When you take a top off of a jar of peanut butter, what's there? A seal. And what's on that seal? Their logo. Right? They're saying, hey, we stand behind what's in this jar. And as long as this seal is on it, we take ownership of it, and it is ours. And we want you to enjoy it to the glory of God because it tastes delicious. Delicious. Right, they take ownership of it and they say, that belongs to us. That is our peanut butter. That is our product. We stand behind it. Well, when the Holy Spirit, right, at the moment of salvation comes inside of a believer and takes resonance inside of them, guess what God's saying? You're mine. I take ownership of this. This is my child. And that seal will not be broken. Right, that he belongs it gives you great hope because God is after God and he seals you for his glory, not just your salvation. Now, not only do we have hope and salvation, but if God is for God, then we have hope in trials. Your trial, your, your struggle, God is in it and working it together for his glory, which is your good. If you don't believe me, right, you're like, how in the world could a trial be for my good and God's glory? My youngest son, is an, has epilepsy. And Jackie and I walked through probably the, the worst six months of our life, his first six months. I mean, Jackie lived on the fourth floor of Shane's Children's Hospital. She practically lived there. And during that season, you know what that trial did in me? It started just raising to the surface all these idols and all these things that I worshipped and an identity that I had created for myself that wasn't centered around Jesus. I wanted to be the best dad and husband that I could possibly be, and that was my identity. I'm gonna be the best dad and the best husband. And we got to this place, and guess what? My son was having seizures. My wife was crying all the time and heartbroken over what was happening. We were crying out to God to heal him, and God wasn't answering in our time. And I, I, I had a breakdown. I centered my entire life around being this dad who has it all together and is always there for my kids and being there for my wife and fixing the problems and always having an answer and always being able to do the right thing. And I was at a place where I was useless. And I sat at a stop sign on 13th Street in Gainesville and I turned my car off. And I said, God, I want to turn my phone off. I want to move west. And I never want to talk to anybody that I've known again. I want to hide. I want to run. I'm not who I thought I was. And God in his mercy. He met me in that place as I've seen there. I felt the Lord say to me, Good, now you realize I'm the one in control. Will you trust me? Let's go turned my car on, I went home, put my kid to bed, and I went to the hospital. Because guess what? She said, his health didn't rest on me anymore. Jackie's emotional state didn't rest on me anymore. Whether Gideon felt loved by his parents fully and, and knew that he was a priority didn't rest on me anymore. The responsibility for their salvation didn't rest on me anymore. It rested on him. And in that trial, right, God met me because God was for God. Lastly, the, the, the last way that this should give you hope is if you're a Christian, it should give you hope in sharing your faith. Some of us are like, ah, oh, like I'm really afraid to tell my neighbor or my classmate or my coworker about what Jesus has done in my life. Like, what if they reject it? What if they reject, what if they reject the gospel? What if they reject me and they don't want to be my friend anymore? What if, what if I don't have the right answer to their question? Guys, I have shared my faith with probably close to a 1,000 different people over the last 12 years. Both in relational evangelism and just walking up and knocking on doors or talking to people on college campuses. There have been times where I have studied mere Christianity and all the apologetics books so much that I felt like Robbie Zacharias could, you know, ask me a question or two. And I'm sitting there with these philosophy and religion majors, and I'm answering every question they have. And, like, they ask this question, I'm like, boom, how about this one? Right? And we get to the end, and I'm like, all right, come to me. You're going to get saved. Let's go. I'm like, so I answer all your questions. What do you think? I still don't believe. I'm like, what? I answer everything. And I've talked to other people. They're drunk and high the moment I'm talking to them. Right, they're on the beach partying at spring break. I'm like, this person's not going to listen to anything I have to say. Like, what in the world? And I start talking to them, I start sharing the gospel, and they're like, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. What did Jesus do in your life? And I'm still thinking, they're like, they don't understand anything. They're drunk. And then we get to the end of the conversation, like, that, I want that. I want that. I want Jesus. How do, how, do, how, do, how do we do it? What do we do? And I'm sitting there thinking, like, God, what really? Not one apologetic was used this entire conversation. Because God is in control of all of it, and he will save whom he will. So here's how we're going to close our time. Um, if I could get the, the band to come up and just and play a little music, and we can get the, the, the lights turned down here when I, when I finish talking. But uh, and if I can get um, the elders and the other pastors and maybe their wives to come up front here, here's what we're going to do. I want to invite you to reflect and respond on all that we see here in in these, you know, 11 or 12 verses. To to respond to what God is saying to us. Right, and as you respond, right, I I want you to to ask yourself this question. Where where is my identity resting right now? Who, Who is my hope in and where is my identity If it's in in school or it's wrapped up in work or it's wrapped up in popularity or money or fame or sex or relationships, here's my question. How is that working out for you? Maybe good right now. Maybe maybe it's good in this season right now. It will not last. And as we've seen in the text this, this morning, the only place to know who you were true, who you truly are and what you were created for is in knowing God as Father and what His Son, Jesus Christ, came and did for you. That God looked out before the foundations of the world and said, I love my children so much that I would send my only begotten Son to live for them and to go to the cross and pay the penalty for their sin and rebellion towards me. And then as he goes to the grave and they bury him and his friends abandon him, right? Three days later, the father raises him to new life so that we might have displayed for us what God has promised and what Jesus has said would happen is truly happened, that our sins are forgiven, that they're paid for, and that we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the most high God because of what Christ has done. And there is no other way. There is no other identity. If God is God and He really did set everything in motion, including you, you either will belong to Him and follow Him or you will stand in rebellion for eternity. And so, where is your identity? If you are a professing follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, you have been chosen. God loves you and chose you. You can't change that. I don't care what your theology is. The Bible says that God chose you before the foundation of the earth. And so here's what I would invite you to do. If you're a follower of Christ, I'd invite you to to sit and reflect and pray and ask as his son or daughter, God, where am I not following you? Where am I putting idols up before you to serve things other than you? Might you reveal them to me and repent of them? And then you just ask him, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do? If you are not a Christian here this morning and you're like, what the heck is this guy talking about? One, thank you for coming. And two, I'm just gonna say this, it is not random that you are here this morning. There's no such thing as coincidence. You could be anywhere else this morning. Anywhere. And you are here because God is screaming out to you, I love you. I love you so much. I sent Jesus to die for your sin. You are here this morning to hear that message of God's great love for you. Might you turn to him and worship him and place your trust in him. We're gonna have people up here for you during this time of reflection, right? That you can pray with, whether you have sins you wanna confess and have somebody pray for you or whether you wanna come up here and just say, I'm not a Christian, I don't even know what it means to follow him. Will 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 you just pray for me and talk to me about what it means to be a follower of Christ? We've got men and women who will be up here. Jackie, if you will come up and and any other women in the church, Leah, uh, to pray. If you're a Christian and you want to confess that sin and just turn to him, would you come up here and do that? If you're not a Christian and God is saying, "I I know he did this for me. I want to respond to him. Will you come up here and pray with somebody and tell them that? I'm going to pray right now for us. If you'll turn the lights down, Brent pray that we would respond to him right now. God, this is all for you. God, thank you that you are for your own glory and that because of that, you chose to save us, a sinful and rebellious people. God, convict us of our sins. Reveal to us where we're placing our identity in anything other than you. And as we take communion this morning, might we take it if we're a Christian, hopefully and expectantly, worshiping you because you gave your son for us. And then may we leave here today living for you and unto you as our God and our King. Heavenly Father, we love you and I ask this all.